Morning. Everybody doing good? Yeah? I'll tell you what, it is my favorite time of the year. I can watch the Braves and I can watch college football on the same day. Man, this is the best time of the year. I saw somebody yesterday uh, post on social media, I thought it was really funny, that um, the start of college football is kind of like Christmas, as long as you have the knowledge that Santa could come in and take all of your presents and burn them right in front of you. Because for some people, you watched your team this weekend and you felt like everything was being burned right in front of you. But uh, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. And, and, And see, here's the thing about college football. Since January to August, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of hype, right? Our team's going to do this, we're going to win this, we're going to beat this person, we're going to beat that person. And it's all just talk, right? It's all just this, this, these statements. And, and then the game starts unfolding in front of you and you're sitting there and you're watching the game and, and you're kind of doubting all of the things you've been talking about the last few months, right? Like, oh, wait. Like last night, I was watching the Auburn-Oregon game. And up until about a minute and a half left in the fourth quarter, it looked like Oregon was going to abscond back to Eugene from Dallas with a win. Nothing seemed certain. Some of your teams did good. Some of your teams did not. And some of you wake up in the morning on Saturday ready to go, but then things start just going, ah. You know why? Because we're trying to find assurance in something that is not certain. And and, and assurance and uncertainty swirl around us. And, And it's nothing like a sports team to bring out all of the uncertainty of the day. Like yesterday, bottom of the first inning, the Braves are winning six to one. It's like, man, we've got this in the bag. This game is going to be great. Next thing I know, it's seven to five. I'm thinking, okay, the Braves are going to somehow find a way to let their bullpen give this game to the White Sox. Because sports bring out uncertainty. Maybe you're not a sports person, but you deal with uncertainty every single day. As a matter of fact, uncertainty is what keeps us awake at night. Do do I have enough money? What if I get sick? What are the kids doing? What, What if this happens? What if? See, there are too many things in our world that swirl with uncertainty. So in order to overcome some of the uncertainty, we work hard. We do everything we can to make sure that we place things of certainty around us. So we buy insurance policies. Uh, we, 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 we buy extra of this. We make sure we save this. And, and we put all of these systems in place to where hopefully there's some certainty that is left. And that's all fine and good. For now, when was the last time we lost sleep over the certainty of our soul? Where we stood with God? When was the last time that we struggled with the certainty of a friend, family member, or coworker, neighbor, someone in our life, and the certainty of where they are when it comes to the kingdom 
of God. There's not an insurance policy. There's not a savings account. There's nothing that we could place and put parameters in, in, in place for, for that. And so, so we struggle and we wrestle. And you know what's sad about, about all that? Is there are false teachers all around us that try to give you and me things that are supposed to make us certain about God and who God is and what God has done that are not biblical. They're, 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 they're not in how God has revealed himself. And so 1 John chapter 2 takes us into this certainty because I believe in assurance. Not insurance, assurance. And I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us assurance for what we can know to be the most certain because we don't know if our star quarterback is going to blow out his knee or shoulder on the first play of the next game and our season's done for. But what we can know is that what our Savior did for us is for all time. So how do we know for certain? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3, we find these words that the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, writes. See, last week we were talking about, uh, we were talking about this light that is shining. We we're talking about fellowship and how all of this draws in. And we talked about those, those deceptions, that self-deception of, well, I, I don't have sin or, or, or I don't have a sin nature. But what we need to do with that, and here's what John says, starting in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this we know that we are in God, in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want assurance based on what I say this morning, but based on what your word says. Father, I ask that this morning that your word would be abundantly clear and that if there's anyone who has doubts about their salvation, doubts about what it means to follow you, that today by this truth of your scripture, you would reveal to our hearts so that we could know you, walk with you, live in you. Lord, you are light. You revealed yourself as light. Shine in the dark places of our soul so that we can be with you. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So we get into this passage of scripture and John is giving some pretty strong language here about assurance and about knowing and having certainty. He doesn't have the Aflac duck coming alongside of him, Aflac, and promising all these things. What he has is the, the word of God. And, and as you and I strive for assurance in life, what we're going to find is that this quest for assurance is going to raise some questions within our heart. We're going to ask those questions of how do I know? And so what I've listed there for you in your outline, and we're going to walk through this in this passage of scripture biblically, are just some questions that, that might come up. But notice what John says here. He says in, in answer to the questions to start verse three, by this we know that we have come to know him. 
He uses the word for no twice in this to emphasize the assurance that he is about to give. And, and so we, we ask questions about assurance and certainty in life and what swirls around us, but, but sometimes we do spiritually too. And, and, and while I don't think that these are the exact questions that John was seeking to answer, I do believe that the questions there in your outline can be answered out of this passage of Scripture. So, so, so before we get into the question, I just want to pause for, for a quick second and, and just kind of put a little disclaimer out there. If you have asked or struggled with any of these questions, that's okay. That, that, that's okay. Because you and I live in a world that is going to launch every opportunity to attack our faith, where we stand, what we believe, where we place our faith. And, and the, the reality is, if you've never struggled with these questions, that's more of a sign of concern and alarm than if you have struggled with these. Because Satan's only going to try to bring doubt into your mind to dissuade and to distract you. If you are solid, if you, if, you're, if you don't need to be distracted, he's going to leave you alone. If you're not in Christ, he's going to make you feel like you're okay, make you think you're okay, and not give you a reason to doubt or to struggle because he doesn't want you to come to grips with what's real and what's true. So, so if, you've, if some of these questions are like, oh, no, 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 that's not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, and you're honest in your heart that that's not me, then maybe you need to be honest in your heart that maybe I'm not in Christ. So let's walk through these together and just know it's okay to have these questions. My goal is to help you walk forward from here with assurance from his word. Maybe the first question we ask ourselves is, or that we do ask is, can I, can I know God? Is that even possible to, to know God? See, philosophy is based on this quest for truth. And so in a sense, this is a philosophical question. Can I know what's real? Can I know what's true? See, Plato, one of the great philosophers of the Greek world, he thought that everything we saw was just an image, just kind of a shadow, something that was out there, that we kind of lived in this, this false reality cave, and what we saw as reality around us was just an image shadow on some sort of a wall. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I, I don't know what you've got to be on to start thinking that way. But for him, that was reality. And so philosophy has, has had this drive for centuries, for millennia, to find out what is truth and what can be known and how do we know what we do know. But what this Bible passage tells us is that there is something certain and that is that we have come to know God. I want to tell you this morning, yes, it is possible to know God. You can know a lot of things about God. You can know a lot of conjectures about God. We'll call them those. Because until you personally know God, everything else is just mere conjecture. It's a thought. It's an idea. It's a hypothesis. It's something that's on paper but is not realized. But notice what John speaks to here. He says in this passage of scripture, he says, by this, there is a way and there is something that we know. And by the knowing that, we have come to know him. If the basis of 1 John is to give us an idea of what it means to have fellowship with God, he was helping us see who this God is and how can we know. 
when I was a kid, I kind of had a wild imagination. And, and I might be telling you something now that my wife doesn't even know about me. So confession to everybody. I had a lot of imaginary friends. But the thing about my imaginary friends were they were real people. Not, not like I could see these fake... No, it, I would have conversations. I, I grew up real lonely, y'all. Just, just know I grew up lonely. There weren't any kids in my neighborhood. So if I was in the yard playing, I would pretend that one of my actual friends from school or church was there with me and I'd have conversations with them. Christy doesn't know this and this is a little bit embarrassing. Before we started dating, I had a lot of conversations with Christy. She was my imaginary friend. And I would have these conversations with her. And when I would see her, I would honestly have to think, did I actually talk to her about that? Or did I talk to myself talking to her about that? See, the reality is that these imaginary conversations that I would have with real people did not promote fellowship. All they did was create an image in my mind that something took place that did not. But that's not how it is with God. There is a true desire for fellowship. And so all the things that you should know about God, he has revealed to you in who he is and by his word so that we can walk away and say, this is a concrete statement that we know God. Your prayers are not these imaginary conversations. They are true fellowship with the living creator of our bodies, our souls, our minds, our spirit of the world around us. Yes, you can know God. By this, we know that we have come to know him. Well, what evidence... Do we have that we know God? What, what evidence do, is out there for knowing God? See, evidence links agent to action. And a lot of times we start thinking of evidence in crime scenes, right? You know, it's been 25 years, I think, since, uh, since OJ was being chased in the white Bronco. And, and years ago, you made up your mind whether you thought he did it or didn't do it or whatever. And it was all based on evidence. But none of us actually put our hands or eyes on the actual evidence, did we? We, we were all glued to our TVs that summer, weren't we? We were going to see what Johnny Cochran and, and Robert Shapiro were able to pull out of their hat and see what's going on with. See, they were, they were putting evidence for but, but evidence is not just for crimes. Evidence goes for all aspects of our life. You start asking for evidence of life on other planets. You start asking for, for evidence of, of God's work. You start asking for evidence of this and evidence of that. And we've got to ask ourselves, okay, if God is able to be known, what evidence do we have? Notice what John says in verse 3. This is the evidence that we have, that we know, that we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. Folks, I can tell you of story after story of people that I've met in the church that will tell and say, yep, 
I'm a Christian. I was baptized on such and such day. And you ask the question, well, how's God been moving in your life? What, 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 you start looking for, for evidence. And it all points back to this one event that took place years ago. But there's nothing going on in their life now that signifies that I actually know who God is. My wife's sitting on the front row. If you've never met my wife, she's the most beautiful woman in the room sitting right up here on the row. So who's your one? That's my one right there. I could stand up here and tell you all about my wife and about the day we got married. But unless I give you evidence that I'm actually married, all you hear is a story. I'm not married because there was a ceremony in December of 2007. I'm not married because I've got pictures to show you that I was there. I'm not married because there was a preacher standing up. We had two preachers standing up there. That's not what makes me married. What makes me married is the evidence of the relationship and how our lives are intermingled together. And John says, if you want to know for sure, if you want the evidence, it all comes down to how you live according to what God has decreed is right. See, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 says that, and that day when I take away their heart of stone, I'll give them a heart of flesh on which is inscribed my law. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, it's not a get out of jail free card. It's a surrender to to the God who made you to live life the way that he said it should be lived. Maybe you've heard someone say it this way. If you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. If you're going to co- proclaim this, there's got to be some evidence around it. And maybe you've heard this question asked. If you were, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? But see, we live in this world that wants to pull us and draw us this way. And so John says, if you say that you are fellowship with God, but you walk in the darkness, then you're a liar. Here he says, if we say that we, this is how we know that we have come to know him, that we are living life in him, in Christ. We, we obey him. We obey him. Philippians chapter 2 verse 11 talks about how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want to be clear. I want to be crystal clear. The Bible does not teach us that we work our way into heaven. You cannot be good enough to be saved. But because you have been saved, your life can take a trajectory of the good works that follow Christ that are a display of appreciation for what he has already done. Which leads us to the third question. What if I don't feel saved? What, what if I don't feel saved? We, man, we get all up in our feelings about some stuff, don't we? We, 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 can, we can get in our feelings about, you know, the way somebody looked at us, they, didn't, they did or did not comment or like our Facebook status or they didn't say hey to me or they cut me off in traffic, the guy that almost ran over me at Walmart last week that I told you about. You know, you've got all these, we can get in our feelings about some stuff, right? Because we've elevated this emotional draw to everything that we do. It's what we feel like. 
Well, can I be real with you? There are going to be days, if you, and if you've, if you've walked with Christ any period of time, you're going to know this one. There are going to be days you don't feel like you're saved. You, you don't feel like a Christian. You don't feel that moment. See, when that creeps into our church, into our way of life, what we're looking is these emotional highs. See, see when, you're, when I was in, in youth ministry, when I was a student, it was always that, that, that summer camp experience. You go off to summer camp, you get on this Jesus mountain, and you, man, you break up with all, with, you renounce girls forever, and you break all your non-Christian CDs, and you say, I'm only going to wear Jesus shirts to school every year, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to stop doing that, because you get up on this spiritual mountain top so to speak and then you get home and it's like oh I'm not there singing those songs listening to that preacher and doing this it's just like you feel every Sunday when you're sitting here and I'm preaching to you oh yeah I'm there Jesus and then you get home you're like oh heaven's not here with me so I can't do that right humor me a little bit sometimes you just don't feel like it which is why there has to be evidence Something that you can go and rest your soul and your heart on. And what John says here is that this is the one that says I've come to know him. And there's evidence because we're walking in his commands. We're living life according to his word. It's not just that Jesus was born of a virgin and died and rose on the third day so that we could be forgiven. It's that we look at what the gospel has shown us of how we live and how our hearts are oriented to pull in together all that Jesus said and did and taught so that we would know how do I live even when I don't really feel like it there are days I don't feel like being a dad true story there are days when the last thing I want is for a fussy kid to wake me up at seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday to tell me that you know their tummy hurts or mine does too go back to sleep I'm asleep too you leave me alone there are days when, you know, I've been at work, I've been at the office and I come home and I don't want to sit there and read about, you know, puppy, puppy, puppy and this baby and its puppy for the 900th time that week. And every single day there are times when I say, you know, I don't feel, but that doesn't stop me from being who God made me. For, for bearing up the responsibility of being a father, of being a husband. Sometimes I don't feel like it, but that doesn't excuse me from that. Sometimes you're not going to feel like you're saved, but that doesn't excuse you from the ability to look back and say, I've got evidence because I've been walking with him faithfully. Let's get deep a little bit, okay? Because the fourth question is one that we might not verbalize, but we internalize because of the great deceiver, our enemy Satan. And that's the question of what can I get away with? What can I get away with? Or, 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 or maybe, maybe the question that we want to phrase it is, how obedient do I have to be? If the stipulation here is that we know that we know have come to know him because we have kept his commandments, well, which ones can I not keep and still be okay? This is the I came to church clause, right? This is the, oh yeah, I'm okay, I went to church. 
I'm okay. I, I, I sat on that pew. I'm okay. I tithed this week. I'm okay. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't skip Sunday school. I, I'm okay. I brought my Bible. I'm okay. All the little boxes on the offering envelope, I got to check off. I was on time. I brought a Bible, brought an apple for my Sunday school teacher. I brought a friend. I prayed for a friend, put some money in the offering. All these things that we want to tally up. Yeah, okay. Notice what John says. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. So, so what can I get away with? Because I don't, I, mean, I want to know God. But, you know, is it okay if I break this commandment? Maybe you feel like Eve. Maybe you feel like Eve as she's standing there in the garden of Eden looking at this fruit and the serpent slithers up to her and whispers that lie and says, you're not going to surely die. It's not going to happen to you. And so she eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when she does, she realizes, I didn't die. I'm still here. Maybe God didn't lightning bolt you on the fanny because you disobeyed that one commandment that time. But guess what? God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. This isn't a do good, get good principle. It is a do good because of the good that he has poured into you. And so the motive of our heart should be obedience in all things to say, you know what? This is the savior that I come to. One of the greatest causes of lack of belief among our unchurched friends and family members is they know too many Christians. They know too many of us. Mahatma Gandhi very famously said, you're Jesus I love, but you're Christian I can do without. You know why he said that? Because when he was studying in England, when he was studying uh, uh, in, in the college there, he came across the teachings of Jesus Christ and thought this would be what would finally end the repression and what would finally end the, 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 the feudal system, the serf system in India. This will finally set people free. And so he went to a church in England in order to hear more about this Jesus and this gospel. And as he approached this, this young man, this young college student from India, as he approached the church, he was greeted by an usher at the door and said, you you can't worship here. You need to go back to your kind. And his response to that was, if this gospel cannot even change the culture here, it will never change the culture where I'm from. You're Jesus I love, but you're Christian I can do without. Because too many of us try to find this loophole. What can I get away with? How, how will be... We're all guilty. It's human nature. It's the propensity towards sin, which all of us have rotting in our flesh. And while we all need to be reminded of the gospel and the good news, maybe it would be helpful for us to remember uh, the, the parable that Jesus told over in Luke chapter 19. I'm going I'm to read this passage now, and then we're going to kind of highlight it again here in just a little bit. It says, starting in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed, the disciples supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And Jesus said, so a nobleman went on a, went on a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself in return. 
He called together ten of his servants and said to them, and gave to each of them ten minas and said, do business with this until I come back. So there's the command. Do business with this, this investment until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. But when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that the, the servants that, who had been given the money be called to him that they might know what business, that he might know what business they had done. The first is said, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. You gave, me, you gave me this one and I've multiplied it by 10. And he said to him, well, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are going to be in the authority over 10 cities. You see the return there? You were good with one, we're going to give you 10. So the second came and said, your mena, master, has made five menas. And he also said to him, you are to be over five cities. Not the well done, not the good job, not the pat on the back, but guess what? Here's your return. You, you did the business, here is your return. Another came, verse 20, saying, master, here's your mena, which I kept put away in a handkerchief because I was afraid of you for your exacting man. You take up what you didn't lay down, you reap what you didn't sow. And he said to him, by your own words, will I judge you worthless slave? Did you not know, did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I lay not down and reaping what I sow not then why did you not at least put my money in the bank so that when I came back I would have been able to collect interest and he said to the bystanders take the men away from him and give to the one who has 10 minutes and they said master he already has 10 he said I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given but from the one who does not have even what he does have will be taken away all of these are enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them bring them to here into my presence you're like okay what does that have to do with first John chapter 2 has everything to do the commandment was given to go and to do business. If you're in Christ Jesus and you're sitting here today, it's because God has placed you in an order to do business for his kingdom. And that business might not be earning money, but that business is to be earning souls for the kingdom. And what I mean by earning souls is not that you're trying to keep a tally, but that you see men and women, children around you that need the good news. And he's left you here as his disciple maker to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But too often we say, I'm going to get away with that. I don't have to obey right there. I can skirt there. I believe that the greatest condemnation against the church in America is not that we have too much, but that we do too little to reach people with the gospel. It's not that we don't have enough programs, that we don't have enough staff, that we don't have enough this, that we don't have enough that. It's that we've lost focus of the central charge that was given us to go and make disciples. And that's not a pastor's responsibility. That's not a deacon's responsibility. That's not a Sunday school teacher's responsibility. That's all of our responsibility. The command was given to all of us. The fifth question, does sin in my life mean that I don't love God? This is a natural one to wrestle with. Be because we do love God. But we still fail, right? I love my kids more than you'll ever know, more than they'll ever know. Parents, you can resonate with that. And when I fail them, it's not because I decided I didn't love them, it's because I'm broken. I love my wife more than, 
I'm going to start singing all the love songs. What was it Randy Travis said, you know? Uh, love is deeper than the holler, higher than the mountains. Y'all listen to country music, some of you. I'm not going to say. But that doesn't stop me from failing her. It doesn't mean I don't love her. Because you fail to uphold the commandment of God perfectly does not signify that you don't love God. It signifies that you are still in the process of being saved from the power of sin in this world. You've been saved from the penalty of sin, but you're being saved from the power of sin now because your flesh still wages war. And 1 John says this, he who doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been perfected. And what John is pulling in here is this, sta- this, this stabilizing effect of what it means to follow God. It doesn't say in here that he who keeps his word perfectly, that he who strives to live as God has directed that we live is symbolizing that the love of God is active in him. There was a Christian missionary to the Germans in the 8th century named Boniface. Boniface was Catholic and he was proclaiming the gospel among some of the pagans in, in northern Germany. And this entire, uh, this entire uh, area uh, worshipped a tree. You thought tree huggers were an American thing. No, no, this, this goes all the way back to the pagans in, in the 8th century. Because they believed that Thor, the the Nordic god Thor, by his own power had established this tree. And so they worshipped the tree in order to worship Thor. And they would bring their sacrifices and go through their pagan rituals there around this tree. And, and, and Boniface started proclaiming the gospel there and, and they didn't want to hear the gospel where, where, where Boniface was proclaiming. And so he did an Elijah thing. You know, Elijah had the, the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Well, Boniface did the same thing. He said, you know what? Um, we're going to get together. We're going to see who God actually has power, who God actually has might. And, and Boniface himself showed up three days later and one of the chiefs in the, of one of the villages and one of the religious leaders there were there to, to guard him. They started hissing and mocking at him and the three or four people that were there with him. And Boniface approaches this oak tree with an axe. And, and they're warning people, stand back, stand back, because our God is going to strike him and is going to strike this and is going to rain down fire and is going to make sure hammers, uh, Thor's hammer is going to come down on him. So back up so he don't get hot, don't get hit. And Boniface starts chopping down this tree. And when every swing of his axe, they would hear, he would hear the cries of people crying out to their false God crying out that Thor himself would come and avenge this disaster until the final swing of the axe fell the tree and it crashed and splintered into several pieces. And there was silence across until the chief stood up and said, if our God was powerless, To protect this holy vestment of his tree where we have come to worship, then he has no power to protect us. We want to hear about your God. 
And that day Boniface stood there among all of these, these Germans and began proclaiming the gospel to them. And as people were coming to faith in Christ, he warned them and reminded them. And I love, I love this that he said. He said, Boniface made it clear to the converts that each was committing their whole life to the Lord. What can you get away with? You've committed your whole life. And he would say to them, listen, my brothers, and consider what you have solemnly renounced in your baptism. You have renounced the dead and all his work, the devil and all of his works. The devil's works are pride, idolatry, envy, murder, lying, stealing, adultery, abortion, belief in witches and other such things. You have promised to believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one almighty God and perfect. Trinity, and you have promised to obey all of his commandments. You want assurance in what you know and what you believe? It comes in how you obey the living God. Maybe you don't need a tree to be fell in front of you. Maybe you just need to fall to your knees and call out to God and say, Show me how to walk in your statutes. What does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love God? He says there, if you keep his, he keeps his word and the love of God has been truly perfected. See, there are three options here. Is it that God's love for us has been perfected because we've obeyed? Is it that our love for God is demonstrated in perfection because of our obedience? Or is it a little bit of both? That we have God's love on us and because God's love is on us and in us, we're able to obey and keep his commands. I think it's the third. I think what we come to in this passage of scripture, what does the love, what does it look like to love God? It looks like joy and appreciation for all that he has done, evidence but how we live our lives outwardly towards the world. You want assurance of God's love. It's in how you live your life according to him. The last question that we ask is, what would Jesus do? Well, well, you remember the bracelets about 20 years ago that came out, WWJD. You know, some of you might still have one. What would Jesus do? And, and it kind of became cliche, but look at what John says. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in Christ ought to also walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. What, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? What would Jesus think? What, how would Jesus react and, and don't get me wrong, Jesus wasn't this calm little pushover, right? So, 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 so don't, don't get this twisted image that you've got to be all gentle and oh, that's okay. And you've got to be all like, oh. no, no, no. You remember Jesus? He was the one that was filled with holy rage that he flipped the table and brandished the whip and drove people out of church. What? Jesus is the one that proclaimed on the mountainside, unless you partake of me and all that I am, that you eat my flesh and you drink my blood. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was talking about embracing what it meant for him to sacrifice himself. Then you can't have a part of me. You're not going to walk with me. And the multitudes left. John chapter 6 verse 66 says that they all left. And he's just there with the 12 disciples and he looks at Peter and says, are you going to leave me too? How does Jesus' life, his teaching, shape who you are? Folks, I believe in assurance. 
I, I, I believe in assurance. And, and the reason I believe in assurance is because of what Christ Jesus has done. So, so I, I'm just going to kind of talk to you that have assurance for just a moment, okay? Because, because I'm going to come back to those of you that don't. The question that we have to ask ourselves if we have assurance is this. If, if I do have assurance, who do I know that I can reach to offer assurance? If, if I have assurance of my salvation, my position in Christ. See, John's writing this. He's writing and giving an example of this is how you know for certain. This is how you know for sure. This is how you have assurance. It has nothing to do with what you have physically in this life, but spiritually how we walk with him. So if you have that assurance, you know somebody who doesn't. You, you know someone who doesn't see my shirt here who's your one who, who, who's your one who's that one person what if every single one of us could answer that question with the name of a, 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 of, a of a brother a sister a cousin a niece a nephew a neighbor a co-worker a, a, a classmate that we know for certain doesn't know Christ and not just, oh yeah, that person's lost. Yep, they've got a one-way ticket to hell punch. Yep, I know. No, no, not that, but that you know that they don't know Christ and you're committing to reach them. That, that one, that, that one person. I'm not asking you to give me a list of 25 people that I can go and talk to. What we're asking is for one person that you're gonna commit to pray for so that you can talk to them. There in the pew in front of you, you'll notice there are these little books. And I'm asking every one of you to take it. Every single one of you. This is a 30-day prayer guide. Today is the first of the month. Guess how many days there are this month? 30. This will last you all month. And you know what? You can start it again October the 1st. You can start it again November the 1st, December the 1st. To commit to pray. Inside there is a card. This card serves as a bookmark and a reminder. On the not solid blue side of the perforated part, you can write the name of a person. At the top of the bookmark page, it has all the passages of scripture that you will find there in your prayer guide. And all of these right here are, are the days that you can be praying. And you put their name there. Can I be clear with you what I'm asking you to do? I'm not asking you to say, oh, I'm going to write this person down and I'm going to pray for them. Lord Jesus, I pray that Pastor Evan shows up at this person's house this week. Lord Jesus, I pray that my Sunday school teacher is holy enough to know that I'm praying over this one person. They'll just have it on their heart to go by and meet them too. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just put somebody in the checkout line at Kroger beside them to tell them about Jesus. No, no. The prayer is, Lord, as I'm praying for this person, give me the boldness and the courage to proclaim the good news to them. See, you remember that parable that we read a little while ago? The man was leaving town. And he gave all of his servants a responsibility. He made an investment in them and said, okay, I need you to, let me see what the return on investment is. 
And when he came back, there was one that had plenty to show. I took one and I made 10. Good job. I had, there's one that said, I took one, I made five. Good job. There's another one that says, I took one and I hit it. And we can contextualize that to the church that many of us have hidden the gospel so deep in our heart, so deep in our Bibles that we dare not speak it to anyone else. We say, oh Lord, I came to church, I was there, but you did nothing with what you proclaimed to believe. You did nothing with the good news. And so who's your one is about proclaiming, it's about going, it's about doing, it's about asking God to walk us into the lives of people that we can say, this person is the one that God would have me reach. And if you're able to reach them in 30 days, praise God, we'll get you a new one. If it takes you six months, praise God, we'll get you a new one. If it takes you from now to the rest of your life, but the key is that you are committed to reaching them. Not just say, okay, I'm gonna pray and have imaginary conversations with them about the gospel and never get there. See, at some point, my imaginary conversations with Christy had to turn into real, I I like you and I'd like to go on a date with you conversations. The prayers that we offer for someone that we know needs the gospel have to go beyond just prayer to, Lord, if you don't give me an opportunity today, they might not ever hear. This past week, one of the associate pastors at First Baptist Church of Noonan lost a cousin to suicide. Now, I don't really know Andy that well. Andy. He was at Southeastern Seminary at the same time Christian and I were at Southeastern, but we didn't really know him. But the tragedy for him in all of this was not just that he lost his cousin, but his cousin was his one. And he had not been given the opportunity to reach that cousin with the gospel. I, I, I don't want to pout somebody into evangelism. I don't want to pull all these, well, if I don't feel like it, I don't want to pull all these emotional strings, but I do want you to be honest with yourself and with life that none of us are guaranteed the next five minutes. None of us are guaranteed to make it to our car. None of us are guaranteed to make it to our house. None of us are guaranteed to make it back here next Sunday. And neither is your one. There is an urgency about this because eternity rests in the balance. And you and I have the wonderful opportunity to share with someone the good news of Jesus Christ if you have assurance. Maybe this morning you don't have that assurance. Maybe this morning you don't realize it, but God's already got you in his crosshairs and he is calling you to say, come and know that I am the true savior. Come and give your life to me and let me show you how life was meant to be lived. Don't walk out of here today without assurance. Don't walk out of here unless you can say, I know for certain that I have come to know him because I took the first step of obeying his command. I took the first step of obedience and I said, I am repenting of my life of sin and I am trusting him because that is the basis of our assurance for the rest of us I'm going to ask you who's your one as pastor Lewis comes to lead us in a hymn of invitation here's what I'm asking you to do you've got the book everybody hold your book up 
I see those books. Up in the balcony, on the floor, I see those books. Who's your one? Maybe today you've already been praying over this as we've talked about it, as we put announcements and feelers out over the last few weeks. Maybe you already know God has put that one person. I'm going to ask you during our invitation to come right up here and do exactly as I'm about to do for you. You write your name. It says, I am Evan and my one is... And you write their name. Maybe you want to put a first name. Maybe you want to put first and last. Maybe you just want to put initials. All month I'm going to be asking us, who's your one? On Wednesday nights, we're going to gather in the fellowship hall. We're going to pray over the ones that we have listed, the ones that we have yet to discover. We're going to be praying that God would use our church. And we're going to be looking at his word together for encouragement on how to reach the one. But who is your one?